is it you haven't seen the god song psycho? Bro, you have seen taxi Mexican. Hello and welcome to this episode of FilmWise, also known as the Why Haven't You Seen This Film podcast. And today, my guest is Vern. How are you doing today, Vern? Hey, very good, Bubba Weed. How you doing, buddy? Pretty good. It's been a while since we since we last talked, I think. Yes, yes, it has been, buddy. Uh, so why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce yourself to everyone listening Sure. Uh, yes. Uh, well, I am the Vern. Um, I uh, host the Vern's Video Vortex as well as the Vern's Video Vanguard. I sometimes contribute to the Cinematic Cast and Jammer when I can, and I help co-host the As You Watch podcast. Yeah, and I've uh, I'm one of those that that helps start the uh, As You Watch podcast. Yes. Yes, you are. Yes. And now I am and doing this podcast and. And uh, you guys have, have switched your formats a, a couple times, and I'm interested to see where you're going with that, with this uh, new season, as you call them. Yeah, yeah, thank you, buddy. And I'm a really big fan of your show as well. You know, this is a definitely great format. Um, it makes me, you know, go back and discover some movies that I haven't seen before. And the ones that I have seen before, it's kind of nice seeing them through, like, a fresh pair of eyes. It's like going to see uh, a good movie with a good friend and having them see it for the first time time it's it's really kind of fun it's you know it kind of uh brings me back to my you know childhood a little bit yeah i i definitely do enjoy this this format for this show and uh which this is a bit of a change up for uh, for my normal format but we will get to that in just a moment first let's go ahead and get to know your movie watching tastes with a, a few questions for you all right man so what is what are three movies that you've seen the most often and haven't gotten tired of yet okay good all right well i mean for one the movies that i probably have seen the most of all is has to be uh pulp fiction I mean, I've seen that one probably many times. Still never gets old for me. It does a little bit, but it's a movie that I can pop on and watch. I usually try to one, watch the one at least once every year. Um, definitely that one. Uh, another movie for me that I never really get tired of watching is the movie Heathers. <laughs> uh, very good uh, episode. Um, not an episode, but yeah, really great movie. Winona Ryder, black comedy, uh, great. Um, and then the other one, and it's one that you covered on one of your shows, and that has to be North by Northwest. Yeah, that was uh, one of my favorites uh, of the older movies, for sure, for, for me watching this on, on this show. And uh, so was Pulp Fiction. Those Those were... Both first-time watches for me here on this show, and mm -hmm. uh, they were a couple of my favorites so far. Okay, and then what is your favorite movie that you've only seen once? Oh, boy. All right, this is kind of a tough one, okay, because I usually try to watch movies like a lot of times. Um, I'll tell you a movie that I didn't actually like because it affected me so deeply, and it really – I could not sleep for weeks after seeing this movie, but it is a beautifully acted movie. It's a well-shot movie. It's just disturbing as all get out. And that would be irreversible. Yeah, I, I think I've heard you mention that before. Yeah, I mean, it's a very disturbing movie. It's all told in backwards order, and it's a revenge story told backwards for our listeners out there. Uh, it does feature a very uh, gruesome rape scene. 
Um, it's just really, I, I can't say I recommend the movie, but at the same time, too, it is a well-acted movie. I think uh, Monica Bellucci is in this, and she does a great job. Uh, the camera work is great. It's an invented movie. It's just really difficult to watch, but I do admire the beauty of it. So Yeah, those, those kind of movies are kind of tough to recommend because they, they have to be for the right person. They are. No, I, I, I totally agree with that. Oh, and I'm like I said, listeners out there, I don't want you to go and watch the movie. Like, well, Vern recommended me this movie. It's the greatest thing ever. Like, no, not at all. I'm telling you, it's not that. But you can definitely see what director Gaspar Noe was, you know, trying to do. It. It's it's not an exploitation film, but it's it's definitely not a Serbian film, but it's uh, it's still a disturbing film. Yeah. All right. And then, what would you say is your favorite genre of movies? Oh gosh, man, I, I really don't have a uh, particular favorite genre. I try my best to watch everything. Uh, but if I go with like, a favorite, um, I kind of tend to go for, you know, the indie films, you know, the kind of like the, um, indie dramas, comedies, uh, you know, stuff that's shown on like smaller screens, I guess. Um, yeah, it's, this is, this, sorry, but this is a really tough one for me to answer because I, I tend to watch everything I, you know, I could watch like a uh, low budget, uh, you know, superhero film or uh, you know, very high quality drama. Yeah, this is a this is a tough one. But I, I, would, I would I would have to go with just like you know, independent films. Um, you know, like recently I just saw uh, Blue Is the Warmest Color. Uh, I live right by uh, an independent theater, so I can tend to see some of those movies more. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, I think that's that's a good choice. I, I know, like, especially since um, starting my site here a couple of years ago and getting more into the, the movie blogging community, I've been a lot more aware of uh, independent cinema, and there is a lot of great stuff out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would consider indie films, maybe not a genre per se, but like a ca- I would call it a category of movies. You're right, you're right. Um, and that's like, but then whenever I ask the question, I, I do kind of, it's just an, a genre is an easier word to say. Like, I, I don't really consider superhero to be a genre either. It, it's it's also like a category of movies, just like animation. Yeah, is a is a category of movies and not really a genre. Yeah, same thing go for you know like westerns or you know sci-fi, you know drama. Yeah, it's just it's all. But yeah, for the for the most part, you you can tell the difference between an independent movie and a, a studio movie. There you go. Yeah. All right, and what would you say is your favorite superhero movie? Oh boy, okay, now, I don't know if you would consider this to be a superhero film, but I kind of do, and that would be The Bride from Kill Bill. Hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I, I will call it, it, it is a bit of a stretch, but, yes, it, but it, I'll it, allow it. it, it <laughs> yeah, I, well, I mean, because, you know, she can do things that no mere human being can do. You know, she was uh, trained um, by a master swordsman to get her the powers and everything. Yeah, yeah I mean, and it also has a it has a very um, like comic book feel to a lot of the visuals. Well, that that too, but we but keep in mind too that there was a scene where the bride gets buried and she's able to like you know kick her way out of it. I mean, she kind of like rises from the grave too to kick, kick more ass, and I found that to be very superhero like. And not only that too, but she did actually take down the crazy eighty eight. So I mean, there may not have been eighty eight. There may not have been eighty eight of them. <laughs> But there was a lot of people that she cut down in order to get revenge on Bill and the Deadly Viper Squad. Yeah, if if I did 
like I, I would say that it, it would be a movie that I could see myself reviewing on my site, but I would qualify it with, with my tag calling it almost super. Oh yeah, I, I totally see that. Yeah, that she doesn't have any, you know, superpowers per se, but she is pretty super powerful. But yeah, the Kill Bill, that, that, that is a great movie and it's, it was one of the, um, first couple Quentin Tarantino movies that I saw. Which which ones are you missing from Tarantino? Have you seen Inglorious Bastards? Um, I've let's see, I've I've only seen Kill Bill. Um, let's see, his was Death Proof and Pulp Fiction. Okay. So I I still haven't seen Reservoir Dogs or Inglorious Bastards or uh, I, I know not too many people uh, consider it one of his greater movies, but I haven't seen Jackie Brown either. Jackie Brown's a good one. Jack, Jackie Brown is a movie that got better through time, so it's definitely one I would check out. I think it's, it uh, it suffered from being released after Pulp Fiction, and Pulp Fiction was such a you know a game changer, and he kind of went back to do a uh, simple crime caper story. It's still a very well done adaptation of a Edward Leonard book. Mm. All right, and then for your, for my last question, what would you say is your biggest film-wise? A movie that you haven't seen yet, but you feel like you should, or one that you just haven't gotten around to yet? Okay, that's a tough one, too. Um, the only one I think that I should watch more of is Akira Kurosawa movies, because mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people have mentioned his movies and I've only seen one of them, and that one was Rojaman, Rashman, I think they put it is Rashman. Um, mm. But I need to see more of his stuff, especially the Seven Samurai. Um, everyone considers him to be a great director up there with like Kubrick and Spielberg and everything like that. And it's one that I need to watch. I just wasn't heavily into Rashman when I saw it, and so I don't know if I'll be really into seeing Seven Samurai. But it's one that. I think I need, I need to be in the right environment to see that movie. So if it's playing at a theater, I will go watch it then. Just watching it on a small screen, no matter how great the visuals are, it's just not one I find myself getting into. Right. Yeah, that that's one where uh, the, the only one of his that I've seen was Seven Samurai. And I, it's one of those things that... that the way I look at it from like a, a first timer's perspective, it's it's one of those things where you can see a lot of great filmmaking techniques that he introduced like way way back whenever he was making his movies. There's a lot of um, revolutionary like uh, filmmaking techniques and storytelling techniques, but at the same time, it's stuff that's been copied and and uh, borrowed from heavily since then so whenever you're going back to it it doesn't feel as revolutionary yeah and that's my main concern about going back and watching those movies is because i know the storyline and I'm, I'm afraid that i won't get into the story i'll just be looking at just the visuals and just how you know how influential they are but i have to be into the story as well so that's what i'm thinking if i'm in a theater situation it's it's a lot easier for me to get into the story and not be distracted by other things around me if i'm at home mm-hmm yeah, and like I, I still think that Seven Samurai was a good movie, but it just didn't like become one of my all-time favorites after watching it. Okay, do you see the uh, the remake? You know the uh, what do you call it here? Magnificent Seven. Yes, yes. No, I haven't yet. Okay, that'd be I don't know that would almost be kind of a good double feature to have both those movies. All right, well, like I mentioned, this is a slight change-up episode. 
And, uh, because for the superhero movie, I, I chose, uh, a new release, which is something that neither one of us had seen. Then another thing that I wanted to do was there is so many movies that people are introducing to me, but I wanted to get a chance every once in a while, like every maybe 10 to 20 episodes or so, just depending on how things go, I would like to introduce one of my favorite movies that's not a superhero movie to someone else and uh, for the first time and see how they react to that. And so I had Vern watch The Mexican Sam was hoping to start her new life with Jerry, but there's been a sudden change in plans. You must be truly desperate to come to me for help. She's off to Vegas. We're from different worlds. He's off to Mexico. I gave you my word. I would return. Now, his pursuit of a priceless legend is about to catch up with her. What will you sacrifice? You know, you're a very sensitive person for a cold-blooded killer. When do we start? Alright, and uh, the, the Mexican came out in 2001. It was directed by Gore Verbinski before he went on to make The Ring and the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. It was really heavily mismarketed as the first romantic comedy between Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts. Well, it's actually much more of what I like to refer to as a caper movie, with uh, Brad Pitt playing Jerry, who fell into the mob, and his, this is about his last job which is retrieving an old and valuable gun from Mexico, while Julia Roberts, who plays Sam, leaves him because of this last job, because the job before was supposed to be his last job, and she goes to Las Vegas, and in the process gets kidnapped by a hitman named Leroy, who's played by James Gandolfini, and is there to ensure that Jerry gives the gun to the right people. And everything that can go wrong does go wrong, but in the end, they end up figuring it all out. So what did you think about The Mexican? Well, you are definitely right in saying that this movie was mismarketed. Even from the poster, this movie is mismarketed because in the theatrical poster, you see both uh, Brad Pitt and Julie Roberts, and they're looking into each other's eyes. And you're thinking that, well, this is going to be a love story where both of them are going to be involved in the story together. But it doesn't turn out to be that way at all. I mean, they each have their own separate adventures. I mean, mm-hmm. you have uh, Jerry going to Mexico to retrieve the gun, and then you have Sam going out to Las Vegas, who ends up being a hostage uh, by uh, Leroy, James Tanofini's character. And so just right from there – and not only that too, but if you watch the trailer for this movie, the trailer is also very misleading because it makes it seem like it's going to be like this uh, – like you said before, this kind of like wacky romantic comedy crime caper, and it's got the goofy narration, and it's yeah. got this happy sort of like music going along with the story. I know, that, but, that was something that, that I definitely noticed, because I, I hadn't seen the, the trailer since I probably watched the trailer in theaters back in, like, 2000, and it, like, the thing that really struck me is, like, the first half of the trailer is, is okay, but then it goes into the extremely stereotypical, like, happy, goofy, quirky, romantic comedy music, 
Yeah, and it's it's it was such a weird thing to watch after I saw the movie and seeing it be this way. I'm like, I'm going back. I'm like, did I just watch the same movie? This looks nothing like this at all. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's um, it's it's. I will say this though, uh, some of the characters kind of bother me, and I want to touch base really quickly on the Jerry and Sam character. Okay, mm-hmm. I I thought the relationship was the very cliche couple. Who fights a lot, uh, but yet they somehow seem to love each other. I only saw moments of them fighting more than I saw moments of them connecting. Did you yeah. see that? Yeah, I can definitely see that. But I mean, the the thing that that I liked about that was I I found all pretty much all the moments when they were fighting to be very funny. Okay. Well, I mean, that, the first sequence you see of them fighting when, you know, he has to tell her that he's going out to Mexico for this job and she's upset and she's yelling at the balcony at them. I thought for the first couple of minutes that scene was funny, but it drayed on a little bit too long. Yeah, I can see that. It didn't get right to the point right away of that. Um, and every time I see them together, they just seem to be more like arguing with each other instead of just working together. So that's why... You know, scenes later on. Oh, are we allowed to do spoilers about this movie? Yeah, I, I, I never, I never purposefully tread lightly on spoilers. Okay, all right. Well, the fact that you know everything does work out towards the end of them. I, like I said, only saw like a few sequences here and there where, you know, they actually did generally like fall in love with each other. And the whole scene near the end where she goes, if two people love each other but they just can't get together. When do the static call quits? And he's like, well, never. And it's like, okay, well, I'm glad they're working things out, but I don't really understand the connection between the two. So, yeah. Um, well, I mean, it it is something where it is supposed to be like a, a long term relationship. Like he's been uh, in the mob for five years now, and they've okay. been together the whole time. That that was another thing, too, but we, uh, about his job, right? Because I had no idea that he was, you know, part of the mob thing, you know, because after the beginning of the movie, uh, he's, he's there, you know, in bed with uh, Sam's character, Sam, and he gets out, goes to a job, goes to, like, this, like, was, was like an audio repair shop or some type of, like, warehouse place, uh, and he meets uh, Bernie, I forgot the guy's name, uh, the pet boss guy was like mm-hmm. Bernie. Bernie's, yeah, thank you. Played by Bob Balaban, and he tells him that he botched his last job, and he has to go to Mexico to retrieve this other gun. I'm like, wait, what does he do? He's a, uh, is he a? Uh, he, he lost like a lot of money for this guy, but I thought that he actually had a legitimate job. And it took me a couple of scenes later on to go, oh well, these guys are actually are bad people, and they're want to use this gun. Uh, for money, um, I I still don't really understand the significance of the gun. I mean, I understand you know the bad story behind it and the legend of it, but I still never really understood you know why everyone wanted it so badly. Uh, it it is one of those things that that that's something that I forget because I've seen this movie um, probably half a dozen times or more, and and I know. And I've listened to the commentary. In fact, whenever I rewatched it uh, for this podcast, I was watching it with the commentary. It's uh, got Gore Verbinski and uh, a couple of the other filmmakers, the editor and the, the producer, I think. And it's one of those things where I know like all the story. So, and they talk about that it's a lot about miscommunications and 
there is a lot of information that you don't get at the beginning. It's something that gets filled in later. Like the the reason that every well, the reason that Naaman wants a gun is because it's valuable and okay. and he wants to sell it. And the reason that Margulies wants the gun in the first place was because while he was in jail for five years, his cellmate was this uh, Mexican boy, and every day he would talk about the the legend of. Um, of the Mexican, and and that would be he would tell him the third legend, um, because each time, each time the legend of this gun is told, it's told differently, and uh, so Margulies wants the gun to give it back to this to his cellmate and his family because that's who originally owned, uh, because I think they were descendants of the uh, gunsmith. Okay. Right, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I got that part from, you know, the very last uh, scene with the uh, uh, girl trying to save, you know, her lover from, you know, the noblemen, and, you know, she kills herself, and suddenly her soul is transported into the gun. Um, I, I, I got that portion of it, you know, during the course of the movie. Um, I just never really... I just, it just wasn't very clear for me, um, you know, why these people are just so gun-ho about this gun for say. I mean, yeah, I think everybody or, 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 else just wanted it because it was worth a lot of money. Like I, I'm guessing, like millions of dollars. I just and why was it worth so much? I just I just I just want a little bit more explanation of why it was considered to be the most valuable gun ever. Was because it was steeped in this history and this you know legend. Uh, it was made by because it seemed like it was made by this like this poor you know uh, gunsmith. And I'm like, well, why is this? Gunsmith's gun suddenly worth all this money. Was it encrusted in some type of jewelry? Um, was there some sort of like uh, sci-fi elements of the gun? I it, was, it looked cool. It had the heart with it and everything. And uh, I just when I hear people talk about this gun, I'm expecting something very cool looking. And don't get me wrong, it does look kind of cool. Um, but then I thought when the first scene happens, the first flashback happens, and the gun miss you know gun misfires and it shoots the guy in the head instead of the target. I'm thinking, well, this gun doesn't fire. Why do people want this gun? <laughs> Is it because it misfires on people? You know, ah. Yeah, like I think it's funny because the the entire or the biggest reason why I watched this movie in the first place was because I thought the gun looked awesome. Okay. Like especially like the how it had the heart in the middle for the uh, the gun chamber and how the heart revolved whenever you fired the the trigger. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I said before, I mean, for being an older gun, it's, it, it doesn't look all that bad. I just wouldn't want to go cross-country to Mexico and go through all this shit that, you know, Jerry had to go through to get it. You know, if I saw the gun, I was him. I'd be like, really? This is it? Uh, but the gun does have a nice little legend to being the fact that it's cursed. And after he gets it, bad things happen to him, like, right away. Uh, he meets him with that dude in the bar, and yeah, he somehow gets – yeah. And he still gets shot. Um, uh, but he by... doesn't just get shot. He gets hit by a falling bullet because it's a, it's a Mexican celebration and they're all firing guns up in the yeah. air. <laughs> and he gets hit by one of the bullets on the way down. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. So that was my other uh, kind of issue about the movie there. But that was about it. Um, but really quickly, though, um, you know, we have uh, Jerry's story going on. Uh, but we also have Sam's story going on as well when she does meet up with the, um, the hitman, uh, Leroy. Leroy. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, which we know right away, which we, who is played by James Gandolfini. Um, and I will have to say this, though. The fact that his character was gay 
was a, a I did not expect that. It was a nice kind of little twist to it. Mm-hmm. And what I liked the best about you know him char- his character is that it was not the usual stereotypical you know versions of what we see of you know gay men in film. So yeah, and 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 also it it's it's kind of like it's it's a chance for James Gandolfini, Gandolfini to play off of his stereotypical role. Yeah, and uh, what, what, and uh, I like that too because when you first see his character, he does seem to be that type of stereotypical role. I mean, he is like that Tony guy, Soprano, that tour, you know, the guy from True Romance. So being that hitman that comes after uh, Alabama Worley, so he he does seem to have that same persona. Uh, but in the scene with the restaurant, and you see him, you know, checking out another guy, and Julie Roberts, you know, or Sam uh, gets wind of that, and he asks him about it. Um, he doesn't. He still st- stays in this sort of like tough guy mode. Um, but he, oh, I see this right here. He he lightens up a little bit. Um, you know, he he warms up a little bit. He's able to uh, you know, open up to her. Um, but at the same time too, you can see in earlier scenes uh, with him and her in the car, and he's talking about the relationship that he does have. You know, a warm side to him. So mm-hmm. I guess it wouldn't really matter if he was gay or not. He still has like this warm side to him. And I thought it was great too when people you go back to uh, Jerry and his adventures and they're talking about Leroy and everyone's like all scared of him. And it's like, wait, did he like you know sitting uh, inside of his garage covering gasoline and and, and, and starting lighting matches? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, uh, but yeah, and, um, they have, like it, it's it's almost like weird too. Like the movie. Almost changes up a little bit when with uh, Sam and Leroy went and they do decide to pick that guy up from the restaurant and they bring him back to the hotel room. They're all having this great kind of like party. It's almost like a road trip movie. It's like mm-hmm. two separate road trips. And I think that Sam's is having a more fun road trip versus Jerry and his road trip because he's going <laughs> through problems after problems just because of the gun. It's like the gun is causing a lot of like, you know, problems for Jerry, but for some reason, Sam Adventures is a, a lot more fun and lighthearted. Yeah, even though she's the one dealing with the hitman. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, and, and I and I really like that that relationship between Sam and and Leroy. Yeah, yeah, why is that to me? It feels like Sam and Leroy's relationship is kind of like building up more. <laughs> yeah, like it's much. She's much more warm with Leroy than she ever is with Jerry. Yeah, at the very end. Exactly too. I might think that. Well, gosh, you know, like Leroy, if you weren't, if you weren't gay, you know, these two could have hit it off because they seem to be a lot more closer. Um, and that's why um, I don't know if you want to talk about the ending of this just yet, but that's why I kind of found the ending with all three characters to be kind of a. Uh, it's I didn't. I always felt that uh, Leroy's character he would have been the one that helps both Sam and Jerry get together. Like he would have been the kind of like guardian angel that ends up saving both characters, you know, from the Bernie guy, you know, the, the guys that are going out to kill Jerry. I thought he would be the one to go in and save them near the end of the movie. Like being almost a guardian angel. Hmm. And the fact that and I'm sorry for spoilers here, the fact that Jerry, you know, shoots him. Yeah, I thought they they find out that he's actually not Leroy. Yeah. And he's Winston. Because there's the whole, um, there's this whole power struggle within the mob between Margulies, who is the head of the mob, but he's in jail, and then, uh, Bernie Naiman, who's running the mob while Margulies is in jail, and he's trying to basically, um, squeeze Margulies out. And so, 
I think Leroy was hired by, I'm not sure, I, I never, even though I've watched it so many times, I'm not sure which one hired which hitman. Yeah, I, I get confused by that too. Um, I really thought that it was, I think it was, uh, Bernie, uh, hired, he's known as like the well-dressed black man. Yeah. Um, who is the, the, the real Leroy. He was the a real Leroy. Leroy. Yeah, I think he yeah. hired him. And then Margulies hired Winston. Yes. I believe, I believe that's correct. Uh, I, I think that, uh, Bernie was gonna end up, you know, double crossing Jerry and get the gun for himself. And mm-hmm. I think he wanted to use, you know, the real Leroy instead. Um, and I think that, um, gosh, I can't remember his name now. You said it too. The other mob <laughs> boss guy. Uh, Mar- Margulies. Mar- Margulies. Ah, thank you. Sorry about that. Margulies, who was played by Gene Hackman, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, gets, the, you know, the uh, Winston. Even, even though he only gets one scene, he gets uh, that's one of the best scenes. Oh yeah, because he's you know able to tell this, the the real story about the gun and its origins. And yeah, I, I agree that was very good. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I really like the you know, uh, James Gandolfini's character in that. He's uh, definitely. Different persona than you've seen before, which I enjoyed. Um, but yeah, it was just towards the end right there, I, like I said before, I really thought that Winston was going to be the guy that's going to help save both of them and help get them back together. He was going to be somewhat like a uh, silent guardian angel. And after he does shoot him, after Jerry does shoot him, and they're there, and they're kind of riding back in town, I, I really thought the movie was over. Like, okay, well, they're, they're back together, you know, they got the gun, alright, sure people are gonna be after them more, but at least they have that, uh, but it goes on a little bit longer, and it was around that point too, where I'm thinking, wow, this movie is really kind of stretching the plot out there a little bit, oh. But at, at the same time, I, I really liked that the ending has a lot of great moments, like, especially the moment where Julie Roberts fires the gun. Okay, yeah, that that part was was good. I I I will agree with that. It, it does make sense. I mean, I'm not saying that it should have had to definitely end there, but it felt like it could have. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I just you know looking back at it now, yes, it does make sense that they have to actually have to try to get the gun right back to its right owner. You know, you have to close up all these other characters' stories because you still have you know the Bernie guy still after um, this gun, and everyone else too is after the people. Um, but I was more interested in the whole of Sam and Jerry kind of getting back together again even though they did fight a lot I didn't really see the connection there I, I guess I was very disappointed in the fact that you know Winston dies so early and I figured he would be the one to go ahead and help save them and then uh, I, I think another great character in here is Ted, who's played by J.K. Simmons. Yes, yes, he was, very much he's, so. He's a great comic relief character, too. Hey, you don't really see that much of him, though. You, you kind of do towards the end of it, but yeah, I, I thought he was good. He's kind of a bat-stabbing guy, I guess, who still wants to be helpful. Yeah, he's, he's like spending all the time, he's... Um, acting like Jerry's buddy buddy, like I'm your guy. I'm your guy, Jerry. Yep, here to help you out there, buddy. I'm just doing my portions. Mm-hmm. No. But oh. at the same time, he's getting orders from uh, Naaman to to kill Jerry after he gets the gun. And you you never really know. Like he says that he wasn't gonna do it, but you don't really know for sure if he wasn't gonna do it. Like he seems like a, a harmless slub. Because he's like he's J.K. Simmons, and, and then this this movie's got like the the comb over. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and I thought this too that you know uh, when Jerry overhears the conversation um, that Ted is having uh, with Bernie about having to you know get rid of him. I kind of took that as, well, he's still working for this guy, so he wants to basically tell him that he is going to take care of this because it's his boss and he doesn't want to be on the bad side either. But at the same time, too, I think he was just telling him that, yeah, I'll take care of this. But in his mind, I don't think he actually would have unless – I think he probably would have gotten done something to get rid of him, but I don't think he could actually kill him. I think he probably would have done to him the same thing that Sherry does to the one guy that stole his car. Mm-hmm. Shoot him, yes, but I don't think you'd find it hard to actually kill him. And I don't think he's really that strong or tough to do so. But he has to tell his boss at the same time, too, that, yes, I will do this stuff because I don't want you to think that I'm siding with this character. Yeah, and... Uh, and that's that's one that's one scene I really love too. It's like I like the the character of of that thief, even though he only has like a couple brief scenes. It's like no, not the leg. There's arteries in there. <laughs> I could bleed to death in mere seconds. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Oh gosh. Um. Uh, well, another character too that I want to kind of talk about, and it's really kind of minor character, but it's the one character that I liked a lot, and that was the dog. Yes, the dog is such a great character, and you you might not have noticed it, but you can actually see the dog in the first flashback. Oh, the dog like that- walks across the frame. Come to think of it, that does make a lot of sense because I sense that. <sighs> Somehow the dog is kind of like a guardian angel. He does, yes, very. Thank you, Bubby. Thank you, yes, because there's a part, and I don't know if I'm saying this right, but I could swear there is like a moment near the end of the movie, you know, after uh, Sam shoots Bernie, that I see a connection between uh, the older gentleman that was in the parlor with uh, Martelise and how he's looking at the dog, and the dog's looking at him, and there's like some sort of moment there. Like, they know each other. And somehow, I felt like he was sending the dog to help guide Jerry on this quest to get the gun back. Yeah, and there's also a moment, like, whenever Ted shows up in Mexico, uh, the dog runs off. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, you're right. Okay, I... See, I'm picking up on other things before, these little <laughs> hidden, you know, things about the film. So, yeah, I, I did really like the dog character. I like the fact that, you know, he basically had to put a gun on the dog to make him do it. <laughs> but it was just whistle, the dog would come back right away, and he's well, always got it's that. It's one of those things that progresses. Like, whenever he... Whenever, at the beginning, he has to point the gun at the dog to get him to <clears throat> to get out of the car and stuff, but then... After like the the second or, or after like the third or fourth time, then the dog starts warming up to him, and and he can just whistle, and the dog will come back. Yeah. I I also like I really like a lot of the comedy in this. Like uh, one of one of my favorite moments is whenever he uh, he has this old beat up truck that he bought from this guy with his watch, and it, because uh, the the car thief stole his El Camino. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so he crashes it into into uh, his car. Mm-hmm. And it looks like he's all like kind of hunched over that like, he's got a new bad car accident. And then, all right. the... and, then, and then whenever he gets his rental car back, he uh, he shoots the the thieves' car. He shoots out the tires, and then he starts to point the gun at the truck. And he's like, "Why even bother?" Yeah. 
Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it, like, it's a definitely a a fun caper. I would I don't like to. It's not really a fun world movie. It's, how do I describe this better? It's a definitely a fun caper how many movie. Of papers, as, as maybe yeah. Put it. I just was very disappointed in that trailer, and I'm afraid two people see the trailer for this, they're going to be like, well, God, this looks dumb, and I will agree with you, it does look dumb, but it's it's not all that bad. Uh, it's a, it's a, over a two-hour long movie. It doesn't feel like it's too long. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm all over the place with this one, Bubbleweed. I, I am sorry. I, I, this is my first time watching this movie. When I watched it again, yes and no, I guess. I mean, it is kind of interesting to see that Gore Verbinski was behind this movie because it does not, it, it does have something in common with, like, with Rainbow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not, not just because of the sentence, also because of the style and the humor of it. The humor between Rainbow and the Mexican are very similar. In fact, I'm kind of surprised that this movie was rated R. It has some language issues, yes, but I just uh, there's some there's quite a bit of violence. Yeah, that's true, but a lot of, some of the violence scenes are kind of like off screen a little bit, and I'm sure with some editing, you would cut down the gore factor. The only part that I thought was kind of intense was when uh, Winston loses it after his lover is found dead. And he finds the person responsible for it. And yeah, Sam's the real screaming at Leroy. Yeah, the real Leroy. And Sam's screaming at him, please don't do this. If you do, you'll, you'll go back to your dark side again. And he's like, no, screw this. And he shoots him in the face. Um, that part was a little bit tense just because of the trauma of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like if you just kind of like cut out some of the language and some of the liberatory aspects, this could easily be a PG-13 movie. It's it's a very lighthearted movie, more than yeah. I think the Raiden gives the credit for. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on now, this is a guy that, you know, went on to make, you know, like you said before, Disney movies with the Pirates of the Caribbean series, and I mean, I believe this is probably his only, yeah, this is only R-rated picture. Oh. Well, like, you, no, well, he, was the ring rated PG-13? P- Raiden was rated PG-13. Hmm. Oh, no, I'm sorry, he also did The Weatherman. The Weatherman was rated R, so. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm not familiar with The Weatherman. Okay. Um, starring the Nick Cage, Nicholas Cage. Oh, that's yeah. It it sounds familiar, but I, I can't. I'm not that familiar with it. Okay. Right. And then one last thing I wanted to to bring up about this movie uh, before we get into our final thoughts is the score. Okay. Uh, um, it's it's one of those things. This this was one of the first one of the first handful of soundtracks that I actually bought that that has a lot of uh, the score music in it. Okay. And it, it's got like the, um, it's Alan Silvestri, and a lot of the main themes are very like Mexican, have a Mexican old Western feel to it. But it's kind of weird. It's it's like got a lot of banjos and harmonicas and whistling. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I I I thought the score definitely matches you know the tone and the story of the film. Um, it was one of those scores too. But as seen them too. It, I never found any of the songs or any of the scores to really stand out, um, except for maybe there's one uh, score towards the end of the movie, or <sighs> let's try this better here. Um, I know this, yeah, I think you said before too with the harmonica, the guitar. Uh, I did sense 
it's one of those stories. I'm sorry about this, but there's one of those stories too where um, I could definitely see. Uh, there's it definitely does match the picture and the tone of the movie. Uh, it goes well with it. Um, there's never one time when I was watching the movie where I go, "Wait me here, something seems out of place." But I felt like it was the same type of sound and score throughout the whole thing, and nothing really stood out to me. It, it's one of those stories too where it plays like, where it matches the tone of the picture. Uh, it being a Western movie. An old West Western movie, not a Western movie, but you know, set in Mexico. Um, you know, deal with mariachis and things. But yeah, it it matches the tone of the movie, and yet nothing really stood out for me. Okay. All right, and then um, do you have any final thoughts about the Mexican? Okay, well, I think I mentioned before there. Uh, performances are good. Um, it is a fun road movie. Um, I guess it's it's better if you go into this movie cold without really seeing any of the trailers of it though mm-hmm. um it, there there are some funny moments in there i i think parts of it go on a little bit too long i think if they shorten this up a little bit it should be better um yeah like i said before it i'm, I'm all i'm all in the place with this one bubble weed uh it's <laughs> it's a fun movie uh it just wasn't all that great i think before my biggest issues were with the main characters of sam and jerry because they seem to be you know, the typical sitcom couple in this kind of a gritty crime movie. Um, I will recommend it for James Dalfini's character. I think he, he, he was the sort of like saving grace of this movie, per se, was, you know, his moments in this movie. I thought he was a really good character. He had a more fleshed out character. He had, you know, changes in his character arc that I thought were good, um, more so than I thought the two main characters had. Like he goes from being the you know going to being being this you know silent killer well, not really silent killer but this like very hardcore killer uh to being you know kind of like heartwarming in a way uh to Sam and to his new lover and everything and then he turns out to be cold again after he dies and then he ends up still warming back up to Sam so yeah I thought for anything at all James Canlefini has shown in that movie that he is a great actor that is truly missed mm-hmm. yeah and. And I I always like this movie. Like I I think Brad Pitt does a really great job. He's really likable in this as the the lovable loser. He, he reminds me of the same character he kind of played in Burn After Reading. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that one. So okay, yeah, you seem to be kind of like this lovable goofy guy who gets involved in crime, but is just way over his head with it. He's involved in the you know mob you know the mob area. He's you know tough when he needs to be, but he's still kind of way over his head on certain things. So yeah, yeah I, I will agree with that. He was good in this. All right, well, we are going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we will talk about the new release, Thor The Dark World. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Chris Tansky. And I'm Dan Fogarty. Together, we host the Title Pending Movie Podcast. Title Pending is a weekly show where Tank and I get together and go over what's going on in the world of movies. Each episode, folks and I take a look at the biggest new release of the week and discuss the weekend's box office. Data. Then we pick a topic to discuss in depth from top tens to current issues to subjects that tie in to that week's new releases. We always do our best to entertain and enlighten, so come and check it out for good times and good films. Check out the Title Pending Movie Podcast. Available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and everywhere that quality podcasts are found. Faced with an enemy that even Odin and Asgard cannot withstand, Thor must embark on his most sorry, most perilous and personal journey yet. One that will reunite him with Jane Foster and force him to sacrifice everything to save us all in Thor, the Dark World. And yes, I did read that off of IMDb synopsis here, but uh, 
Yes, the superhero movie that me and Bubba are going to be talking about is Thor The Dark World, the sequel to the, was it back in 2011? Yeah, of the first Thor movie. Um, now, I was a huge fan of the first Thor movie, mainly because I did not think that character could get his own movie and have it be a good one. And I found the fact that, you know, he's a fish out of water. He's this boorish guy that learns to be nicer. Um, there was somewhat Shakespearean elements with uh, Thor and uh, Loki trying to be keen. Uh, they have some like, fights with their father. Yeah, I, I found that stuff to be really good. Um, but since you, Bubba Weed, are a superhero expert and you know this genre or, you know, these things better than anyone else, um, I, I will tell you my thoughts about Thor of the Dark World, but let's hear your thoughts. Well, yeah, I I felt pretty much the same as you about the first Thor. I, I wasn't expecting to like it, because I, I didn't know hardly anything about Thor, the Marvel character, before watching it, and I thought that that was going to be one that was hard hard to adapt. But I, I really liked the first one, and... Um, and I, I was reading, I was reading my old review for it, and and I didn't, I thought that Loki was a stronger character in Thor than he was in the Avengers, even though a lot of people like him as the villain. But well, you know, no, I totally agree with that too. I mean, I he's one of those villains where I somewhat sympathize with a little bit in Thor, because they were basically told right when they were kids uh, that only one of them will be keen. But they are both destined to be keen. So mm-hmm. there's definitely like this, uh, you know, little turmoil inside Loki. And then when he finds out that he's not even, you know, the king's real son, you know, that's going to bring even more turmoil in there. And so I can understand why he sort of did the things he did, but I don't respect the things he did, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, just, I definitely see the anger inside that character, which is, it's a good thing for villains to have. You know, there's got to be. He's he's an interesting villain too because he does you know, there's sort of like a moral compass going on right there or this moral moral uh, seesaw action going with him when you watch that movie or at least when I watch the movie there seemed to be that teetering element there too like well gosh he does have some good points right there about why he's so angry and ah I don't know which way I should side with him on should I want him to get revenge but yeah I thought that he was a very well rounded out character. And that is why I was kind of disappointed with this character in this one. Not only Loki, but I was also kind of disappointed with Thor's character as well. And here's my biggest gripe about Thor The Dark World, is the fact that both Loki and Thor, there really is not much of a character art there. I mean, in the first Thor movie, Thor was like this brash and brutish guy, you know, very... um, rude and whatnot there too he was considered himself to be a god and doesn't know how to be nice at all and just starts attacking things without thinking about it and he disbanded earth and through meeting you know jane and the rest of the humans he learns to be a nicer guy mm-hmm. now there's now for this new movie i felt that there was nowhere for his character to go i mean there was no change of character too much he was just your basic superhero guy and i missed having you know that change of character from the first movie in this one right in the first movie he grew from a warrior to a hero okay and in this movie he's already a hero 
So where is he going to go? Yeah, and that's the part that I just did not like about it. I felt like he didn't need to have another sequel. I mean, I still like the character of Thor, but I wanted him to appear in someone else's movie because I felt like there's nowhere else for this character to go but up. Even from the first scene where, you know, he's uh, trying to, uh, you know, uh, connect all the realms together and, you know, he's fighting the big rock creature. Mm-hmm. You know, he just hits him once with a hammer. <laughs> and I think it's funny that you said that because... Like I like I mentioned, I was rereading my last, last review, and I said those exact same things, that I did not expect Thor to get a sequel. I thought he would be better used as a side character in other people's movies. Yeah, exactly, because, you know, you kind of, like, know the origin of it already. It's like, there's nowhere, like, where can he go? It's like, it'd be like, like to have another Hulk sequel. I'm like, where, what's the Hulk going to do now? I mean, it's just... Uh, uh, but that was my only thing there with the Thor character. Um, and yeah, then- I do think that he does have... A character arc in this movie, it's just a much smaller character arc because, like I said, you can't go in from warrior to hero. That's a big change in him. Mm-hmm. And then he goes from a hero to just a slightly more well-defined hero in this okay. movie because he he does he learns a lot from um his from the previous events. Um, he's making. Like, he goes from making good decisions to making better decisions, maybe. Okay. Yeah, okay. I I, I can, you know, see that a little bit. Um, but like still... More risks, and he deals... And for the most part, he actually deals with Loki the correct way. Okay, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit of, about Loki. Like, except for, like, the character Loki, um, you know, like, uh, the actor who plays him, Tom Hiddleston, he does a great job. There's, like, a lot of charisma there with the <laughs> character. The only thing that I found to be a little bit odd was the fact that, you know, he Thor asks Loki for his help, even though even though I feel like he knows very well that he's gonna betray him. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, Well, come on, this dude just destroyed a whole freaking city. I mean, you think you're actually gonna trust him to do good and you know, defend you against this new bad guy? I just ah, come on, Thor, I thought you were a little bit smarter than that. And there are elements – there were scenes in the movie, too, where I kind of felt like, hey, well, maybe he is changing for the better. Um, but – and I don't even want to talk about the ending right away of this, but as you can see in the very end of this movie, that's not usually the case. And yeah. I, I, I kind of felt like – Again, I'll, I'll, I'll mention that, that we will talk about spoilers here Okay, because there well, are a few big surprises. Like One comes early on whenever uh, Thor and Loki's mother dies. Yes. <laughs> At the hands of Malekith. Yes. And, uh, you know, one thing, too, I do want to mention ab- about that scene. I never really thought that her character was used as much. And so when she did die, I felt that they really overplayed that scene a little bit too much. We're supposed to feel like sympathy for it, and I, I get it. But at the same time, too, I don't feel like her character was used as much. I mean, it would make sense for a longer death scene if, like, Jane died, because, you know, we've seen this character through, like, two movies, and there were, like, the last scenes with them. It would make sense for there to be, like, a long death scene with her. But with, you know, Thor's mother, I thought that it just went on a little bit too long. Mm. I don't know. See, I I thought that this movie did a good job of setting up what setting up things at the beginning of the movie, or early on in the movie that pay off towards the end or pay off a little bit later because the mother dies because that is the catalyst for getting Loki 
to help. Okay. Because they show that Loki still has a good relationship with his mother, even though, like, she's not... They they bring up that she's not his real mother, just like his father's not his real father. Okay. But he still cares about his mother, his adoptive mother. And they also set up the uh, um, the illusion trick in the dungeon mm-hmm. in that scene, which they repeat with in in the mother's death scene. Um, they do that with Jane, and they do it several other times, many other times in the movie. Okay. All right. Yeah, I I, I didn't see uh, some of that portion right there too. Um, I just. I just... I just because I don't really see much of the mother character from before. It just I'm not saying it would shouldn't have happened that way. The scene it just for me it just went on uh, a little bit too long. Um, but I, I do feel like but we should probably um, talk a little bit for our listeners for the listeners here. Are kind of like what is the main story arc of this movie? And it has to do with this thing called the ether. Yeah, which that, is which I I didn't know this at the beginning. I I looked it up uh, because of the mid credit scene afterwards and the ether along with the tesseract is one of the five infinity stones oh which thanos who was hinted at in the 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 avengers credit scene um he uses to create the infinity gauntlet oh okay well sweetness i'm liking that um so it seems like they're setting i mean this is another big step in setting up thanos as a as a major villain, um, a lot of people are expecting it. Maybe Avengers three. Oh, that's awesome! Oh, that is really cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's the 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 quest here is to basically retrieve this ether. Now, the thing about the ether, and I was a little confused when I watched this movie, is that it can basically teleport things around. Well, the the teleporting that has to do with the convergence, the, the two conver- worlds converging on each other. Okay, then it's just oh, the ether is just the thing that goes into Jane's body that you know gives her that superpowers when people try to attack, you know, touch or get near that blast comes out of it. Right, and the ether is the power, and that that's what they were. That's what Malekith wants to use to bring the universe back into darkness. Okay, I got it. But it was a convergence that, you know, makes the uh, all the portals the lined up, exactly. and that's how everything can go from one portal to the next. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. That, that does make a little bit more sense now when I think about that. Okay. Yeah, and, um, and, the, whole, and the whole point of the whole connection with Malekith, with the ether and the convergence, is in he, he would be able to use the ether in one space to spread it out to all the nine realms at once. Okay. See, I was misinformed of that because I wrote my review. I thought it was the ether that was helping um, the portals be aligned together, but that was just the convergence. The ether is just a power mm-hmm. thing right there. Yeah. Okay. All right. And um, like, let me ask you about the um, about the scene. Uh, I I like to call it like the false betrayal scene of Loki. Whenever they confront Malekith with Jane and the Ether. Oh yes, okay. So uh, yeah. You, so uh, let me ask you: Were you fooled? So, okay, somewhat yes and no. Like okay, so the scene happens, and you know he basically Loki, you know, gives up, you know, uh, Jane to the bad guy and everything like that, and 
you know, he's gonna cut Thor's arm. Cut, cut Thor's, yep, cut Thor's arm off and everything. And uh, we basically feel like, yeah, well, shoot, well, this doesn't really surprise me. It's Loki. Of course, he's gonna try to betray his brother because he wants to be the ruler. I mean, this doesn't surprise me. And that sort of changes when he actually does protect Jane from being hit or something like that. Um, yeah, it's it's revealed to all be illusion. He didn't actually cut Thor's arm off, hand yeah. off, and he was playing against Malekith the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I thought that that was good, and that was the part of the movie where I thought, well, shoot, maybe Loki does have a sort of affection for his brother. You know, he still wants to be king. You know, he may try and get her back another time, but I thought, well, this shows that Loki does have an affection towards, you know, his mother that died, and he wants to try to get revenge on the ones that did, you know, hurt her. Um, but later on, Near the end of the movie, when it's revealed that uh, Odin, when he talks to Thor, and Thor says, well, Lord, I'm going to stay here on Earth with Jane, and Odin's like, well, I can't, you know, uh, praise this decision. I can't say that um, I'm proud of your decision. Yeah. But me saying that I can't say that I'm proud of that decision is actually me saying that I'm proud of that decision. Yeah, exactly. And, and then has a big kind of heartfelt moment there, uh, you know, you know, between two men, and then he it walked out away. to be Loki the whole time. Yeah, I thought, well, gosh, really? <laughs> that was the part of the movie that really kind of disappointed me. I mean, I'm not surprised that it happened. Right. But I felt the whole thing that happened before with Loki, you know, actually protecting Thor – and then suddenly he's backstabbing him again. Well, see, I I didn't see the end as Loki backstabbing him. Really? I, thought, I, I saw the end as Loki protecting him and and actually saying that kind of as both elements. But at the same time, Loki got what he ultimately wanted, which was revenge on his adoptive father and the ability to rule. So is, is Odin dead? And I got that impression. I don't know if that's 100% true or not. The The thing that I didn't quite like about that is, for me watching it, um, during the first false betrayal, I totally expected that Loki was was not actually, was still on Thor's side the entire time. Like, from the very beginning, I, I thought, like, as soon as he kicked uh, Thor down the hill, I'm like, okay, this is all an elaborate plan to... To give the to give Malekith a false sense of security. Okay. And then he cut the hand off, and I'm like, okay, yeah, this is this is still all an illusion. And then as soon as the uh, as soon as Malekith lets his guard down, then they're gonna change it on him, and that's exactly what happened. Okay, I I just I was a little bit more fooled because I kind of <laughs> thought that well, because I mean it's Loki, he he helped destroy almost an entire city for this uh the, the Tasseract project and everything mm-hmm. and, and, that and then, but the thing that i didn't like is they have a brief scene where the guard goes to tell odin that they did not find thor or jane but they did find a body but at the very beginning of that scene you see the the uh, um the effects of loki's illusion so right then, that that told the audience that Loki was still alive, and that that was Loki. And I kind of wish that they had left it, that they didn't add that little touch in, so that the re- reveal at the end was more of a surprise. Because that that touch right there, that let me, that let me as a viewer, I also um, understood that that probably was not Odin, that that was Loki at the end from the very beginning of the speech. Hmm. Okay. All right, yeah, all right. 
But I I also did like kind of Loki's slight arc because he he goes from this complete villain and and I, I liked even though you see how he looks with with the the long bedraggled hair in the first trailer whenever they're talking to him I I kind of forgot about that trailer whenever Thor comes to him and he's still looking all regal in his cell. And then he lets the illusion drop, and then he's just sitting in the corner, all a shambles. Yeah, no, I I, I didn't see that too. Uh, his, his character art is just it's good. I just didn't think it was as good as the first one. I I just my my only biggest issues with all that happened in the movie is the fact that. Uh, Loki looking like he's going to betray his brother, doesn't actually betray his brother, and then near the end of the movie, it looks like he actually did. And I understand what you're saying, too, about him, you know, appearing to be protecting his brother uh, from everything, but still getting what he wants. And I'm figuring there's going to be probably another Thor movie where both Thor's going to find out about Odin's death and was to revenge on Loki, and Loki's going to be uh, another villain for another superhero movie that Thor will make an appearance on, and um, but yeah, I, you know, I I I I can totally respect all of your feelings about Loki. Uh, I just thought he was much more well established in the first one. Um, and but then, and what did you think about Malekith as a villain? Uh, I and thought the, he was, and the Dark Elves as as a whole. The Dark Elves as a whole. There, I I thought they were very basic villains. I did mm-hmm. not find them to be memorable at all. They were just your basic bad guys you would find on an animated series. Yeah, and there was two things that that really kind of struck me about the Dark Elves. The first was like, um, I I don't know how much like fantasy reading that you do, but I whenever I was like a teenager, I read a ton of fantasy books like uh, Forgotten Realms, which is like the the Dungeons and Dragons um, world where Dark Elves are. They're dark skin. They have light hair. The white hair. Um, they live underground. And they had have the the pointy ears, and they're basically the evil version of regular elves. And in this movie, the most of them have pale skin, which I I thought that was, which I saw that, and I'm like, okay, well, that I guess that makes sense because they came from the darkness. So if if they came from the darkness, they don't have pigment in their skin. That makes sense. But then there's the black dark elf, and and he's the one that that uh, crushes the stone and and becomes the cursed. They spell with a K, which also doesn't make sense because that's so, like a proper noun. But they don't say the word cursed. They translate it into cursed. So but, wait, so like the black elves are suddenly the cursed elves? Why is it gotta be that way? <laughs> uh, why, why is it gotta be all about race? Yeah, that's that's kind of what I was thinking the the whole time too. It's like why is it why is it gotta be the black guy that gives his soul to the darkness? Yeah, see what that what that does. <laughs> but that that isn't to read about about the. Uh, Forgot, Forgotten Realms, is it called? I do yeah. remember hearing about those books, all right? I had no idea that they dealt with Elvis characters. But yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just like, I, I thought it was just like kind of a power struggle, and I thought he wants to achieve this power just to have power. That's yeah. all I got from it. Like, he wants to have the the other big thing that I thought is it's they invade Asgard, and then they leave. Yeah. Why did they leave? It's like they, they had the upper hand, the shields were down, the shields are still down. They have this this uh, ultra powerful cursed guy. Was it bad weather? You know, they had uh, <laughs> they had to go back and you know they wanted to go back and get you know media coverage or something for that. I I don't I don't know. And I don't know. Like they they didn't. And Jane ended up being an illusion, but 
It's like he can sense the ether, so wouldn't he be able to eventually find her? Yeah, but, but uh, that's a good point there. Um, I, I do want to touch base on the Jane character, um, as well as uh, Darcy and the other scientists in that movie. Um, uh, they do kind of play with the comic elements mm-hmm. of the movie for this one. Um, and Loki and- gets the best jokes. <laughs> Who does he do the best jokes? Loki. Yeah, that, yeah, okay, all right. Some of the jokes, I feel like they're kind of stretching things a little bit. Um, but yeah, but I, I do kind of want to hear your thoughts about it, of those human characters. Um, I I think the best of the human characters in that one was played by Chris Dowd as, you know, Jane State in the first part <laughs> of the movie. And here's the part two, okay? I, I understand, too, that, you know, it's going to be Thor and Jane, you know, they're destined to be together. But I never really understood that relationship. And when I'm watching this movie, Jane tends to be kind of a bitch. Because <laughs> she's on this date with this guy, and then Darcy comes through and like, look, we found out where your old boyfriend might be. And she's like, oh, really? Well, this guy hasn't talked to me in over a year or so, and I'm trying to move on. But And I'm on this date with this other guy, but, you know what, screw it. I'm going to go and, you know, see what this thing's about. And the sad thing is, is that later on in the movie, when, you know, she's, you know, uh, in the other world, the Asgard world, uh, he's, she's able to, you know, get a phone call from the guy, and the guy calls her back. And I'm thinking, why would you call her back? She kind of ran out on you, buddy. Ah. <laughs> And why? And, and I thought, Jane, why are you leading this guy on? You know, this guy think that, you know, you and him still have this future together. And then he's just kind of, like, cut out of the rest of the movie. So, ah. Uh, <laughs> I like that comic element of the movie, but I just kind of hated Shane because of it. Yeah, I, I don't really, I haven't really given much thought to Jane. She was just kind of there. Yeah, that's the thing too. And but he brings her back to the world because she gets, uh, you know, invaded by this ether um, after discovering that one warehouse where she can actually can go into the other world and this ether thing is infused into her skin and so he has to bring her back to Asgard to help try and get out of her, um, which she doesn't actually... It is the bad guy that actually helps get it out of her. Um, so I, I understood that being just a, a plot element to bring her to that world. And I wanted what happened with Thor in the first movie to happen with Jane in this one. Just a little bit, the whole fish-out-of-water thing, like her mm. not knowing how to basically behave in this type of world. Yeah, and there right, wasn't any of that. Well, yeah, right away, she kind of knew the mannerisms of everything, and everything was just fine and dandy for her. But I wanted there to be somewhat of that you know, kind of awkward phase of being in this different type of world environment yeah i don't know i I didn't really i I wasn't really disappointed by the lack of that element in the movie um even though i i kind of would have liked to have seen it because i i felt like jane for the most part was like the MacGuffin. she she was the ether just like in the last movie um the Mexican, the gun, was the big MacGuffin. In this movie, Jane is the MacGuffin. Jane and the Ether. But I really, I, well, speak about the Mexican and, and being a MacGuffin, I really never considered that to be a MacGuffin because it does have a backstory to it. You understand what the point of the gun is, especially while the legend is there. Um, I don't know if I really consider Jane to be a MacGuffin, but at the same time, I can understand why you would think that way. Uh, I was... <sighs> I thought was every sort of superhero needs to have, you know, some sort of, like, love interest or something that to help show them the way. And I wrote in my first review about Thor 
that Jane could have been anybody. It could have been, you know, a small kid or something. Something to help show, you know, the main character he does have a heart when he didn't think he had one. He was she was there to basically show Thor that hey, he's a nice guy, you know, there's a human element to him. Um, but it, it could have been anything. She, like I said, she could have been an old guy, you know, she could have been a very young girl, uh, something to show the hero that he has heart. Um, I don't think that she should have been necessarily used in this movie. You know, they could have, you know, alluded to the fact that, well, yes, she still likes this guy and, you know, they're still talking to each other, but having her be involved in this just didn't seem to be it, it, it made it to be it, it turned it into a very kind of cliche story about the hero trying to save the girl that you've seen before in many other superhero movies and that's why i feel like it didn't stand out for the sequel yeah. and the girl ends up saving the guy okay yeah no I at guess least so. to, to a certain extent or at least she helps yeah she helped out a little bit there you know but yeah and the, i didn't really get to mention that the other earth characters like i i really like cat dennings and i in this l- movie yes i love cat dennings very much so she very... was really funny that um i i thought they took uh eric selvig's character a little bit too far into comedy oh yes you know especially once you see him in the avengers and yeah i mean they they went complete almost 180 on that character yes he was goofy and wacky before but that's the point of him having to take his clothes off everywhere and that's how yeah i i it yeah it goes far beyond just being a crazy wacky guy yeah but overall, I, I did like pretty much all the humor. I, I, I did too. With a lot of the Earth characters and, you know, Kat, I think that Cat Dennings had a little bit better line delivery than Tom Hiddleston mm-hmm. with, with the jokes right there. Uh, I found some of the lines that were said, it just didn't make me laugh as much. I don't know. Yeah, except I, I still think that the funniest moment is the cameo by Chris Evans. Okay, yeah, that that part was that part was good. Yes, you know, and I remember two reading reviews about you know how Captain America is going to appear in this. Might think, well, this is kind of cool. They are connecting all the movies still together. Like, <laughs> how is Captain America going to appear in this and still you know have his movie too? I don't know. Or do Thor and him meet up in the Captain America sequel? And so, but I watched this and I realized, well, it's just you know Loki, you know, making it look like he's Captain America. And, yeah, and then um, I do also like how. Because um, like one of the biggest complaints about Iron Man three is why didn't he just call his Avenger bu- Avengers buddies to come help him? Mm-hmm. But in this movie, it makes sense because most of it takes place off world, and the part that does take place on Earth is in London, is in England, mm-hmm. and which is like a, not really accessible to the other heroes in New York or in America, okay. at least not easily accessible. And on top of that, the the actual climax of the movie, the part that takes place on Earth, only spans about like twenty minutes, maybe okay. twenty thirty minutes. So, is is this Thor: The Dark World? Is this the second part of the Marvel Phase Two? Yeah, versus the first one. Okay. Yeah, so I, I, Iron Man Three was the first Phase Two movie. Okay, and then this one, Thor, and then Captain America. Mm-hmm. being the other ones there but yes back to the thor and the the dark world um i do like the fact that in this one i thought the world of asgard is opened up more than it was in the first one yeah and i did enjoy very much you know the uh look and feel of the movie itself like the world was more 
it felt genuine more than it did in the first one. Yeah, and I also like that you get a little bit more uh, from Heimdall and uh, the Warriors 3. Yeah, I, I agree. You do see a lot more of that character. Um, and that's another funny thing, too, is that, uh, oh gosh, I'm going to blink on her name right now, and I apologize. Uh, the the girl in this one. Sith. That's Sith, okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, she talked about, what was it? Jamie Alexander, yeah. Uh, you know, she talked about, she's with a Thor um, at a uh, some sort of like party, and she talks about, well, sure, I still battle these creatures all the time she seems to be like what thor used to be like her and the other three they seem to be like what thor used to be like mm-hmm. you know and thor is basically more matured since then but at the same time at least i got it as he's well i would say he actually missed it um but he's how do i explain this better they're both both those three characters there they seem to be the same type of like boorish you know, kind of brute characters as Thor used to be. Mm-hmm. And having him being back in the element, I sense that, well, these people are having fun, they're fighting, they're drinking, everything like that. I, I got the sense there that he kind of misses it a little bit. Yeah, he misses it a little bit, but he doesn't fit in with yeah. it as much anymore. No, not at all. No, very much so. No. Um, but I will ask you this about Wade. Do you, and I'm sorry about changing topics on this a lot here, but did you find Natalie, uh, Jane Foster and Thor's relationship to be that cemented, I guess. I mean, I can understand Peter Parker and Mary Jane. Um, I can understand, you know, uh, Iron Man and Pepper Potts. But Thor and Jane just are two characters that I just cannot see matched together. Um. Well, I I thought that like their overall chemistry in both movies was okay. Like I I didn't think they had bad chemistry, but I also never got the feeling that they had great chemistry. Yeah. Okay. All right. You know, okay, cool. Okay. I was asking about that. <laughs> All right. Um, and then do you have any final thoughts about Thor, the dark world? <sighs> okay. Thor, the dark world can be a fun, forgettable action flick, but when you compare it to the other movies, it just becomes a, just almost forgettable, I was disappointed in this sequel because, like I said before, I was a huge fan of the first one, mainly because of those different character arcs. You know, I like the fact with Thor learned to be good, and this one, he's already good, and basically it just becomes another superhero tale where they have to go ahead and, you know, fight the big bad guy because he wants to take over the world scenario, and he has to save the girl. It, It just becomes your very basic cliche movie um if this was maybe the first story i maybe would have enjoyed it a little bit more uh or if it had nothing to do with the other you know thor legends this might be good um this is directed by alan taylor who's known for doing game of thrones and it feels very much like a television movie almost not with like bad special effects and everything, just its basic storyline. I think that's the part that really disappointed me most most about this is I wanted this to grow a little bit more. And I feel like the uh the only thing that this movie does is that it gives us the ether, which is somehow gonna be connected to the Infinity Gauntlet. But I feel like it was just too long of a movie to bring us to that point. And that's just my general thoughts about it, uh, the actions are good in this. You know, uh, Chris Hemsworth is great as Thor. That's going to be his role from now on. 
special effects are good in the movie. The fighting scenes are fun. I like the before. I like the fact that they make Asgard a little bit more open up. It's just it's the basic storyline and the lack of character arts that makes this a disappointment for me. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of. Um, on the opposite side, I I thought it was a fun. I I thought it was more like a fantasy movie uh, than a superhero movie. I I thought that there there was a bit of an a, a character arc, but it was mo- mostly focused on Loki's redemption. Even even though he didn't really redeem himself at the very end. Yeah, that's the thing too. That that it was yeah that disappointed me about the movie immediately. If there wasn't that one scene there, I I guess I would have seen his character arc change in a little bit. And if it was revealed later on that he was a villain, that would be another fun character arc. But yeah, he, the movie kind of betrayed me, just like Loki has betrayed Thor. <laughs> yeah. Um, there there are some problems with it, like Malekith and the Dark Elves are kind of a weak villain, um, but I I really liked all the humor, I liked all the action, uh, I really liked the sci-fi, the portal touch to the, the climactic action scene at the end. Um, there's a lot of fun characters, even though they didn't grow, I had a lot of fun watching them play around in Asgard and and on Earth, and all that stuff, and, and I I really enjoy myself. I will say this, though, about the movie, okay? And the, what the, the very disappointing thing I found about this movie is that you have the very beautiful Kat Dennons, the very busty, beautiful Kat Dennons, and she's surrounded by layers of clothing. <laughs> that was the part that disappointed me a lot when watching this movie. Like, oh, you're wearing sweaters again? You're wearing a coat again? Oh, damn it, movie. What are you doing? <laughs> so, yes. All right, well, that does it for this episode of FilmWise. Why don't you go ahead and remind everyone where they can find you online? Okay, well, uh, you can find me online. I'm at uh, Video Vanguard, spelled video, V-A-N-G-A-U-R-D on Twitter. Um, or you can find me on my other sites, uh, com. Or Video Vanguard, like I said before, spelled V-A-N-G-A-U-R-D uh, dot com. Um, you can find me on Facebook. Just type in the Verne's Video Vanguard slash Video Vortex. Um, you can even find me by my real name, too, which is uh, Jason Hemming. Yes, I will give that out there. But <laughs> everyone knows me online as being mainly the Vern. Um, but I'm not ashamed at all to tell you my real name. So, you know. Yeah, I'm not I'm not quite there yet. I'm okay. getting there. <laughs> All right, that's cool, man. That's cool. You know, but yeah, but, you know, yeah. Pretty much anybody that uh, communicates me with via email uh, sees it on my email, but uh, I haven't quite thrown it all the way out there yet. On my, well, I'm not either because <laughs> I, I use the I, I, I use my alias, you know, because that's it. my friends to this day. They still call me Vern, even though they know my real name and everything. So I kind of put it out there, just uh, another way if you want to contact me. That's all. Yeah, for me, it's like ever since I've been online, I've used the name Bubba Wheat. And the the thing that I still like about it is that no one else has used it. It's not a common name. Like, exactly. If you Google Bubba Wheat, 99% of the hits you'll find are me. There's there like, you go. There's one other guy who's like an older guy uh, in New Orleans or something like that, and his actual first name is Bubba, and his last name is Wheat. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> really. And that's like the only other thing that you'll find, and he has a very minimal online presence. 
Uh, but, but, it's a, but weed as one word is, is almost always me. Yeah, I mean, it's a unique name, too, and it totally fits perfectly, you know, with the show and everything, everything you're doing online, because you're everywhere online there. It's, it's great. Your site's doing good, and your show's doing great, and yeah, I'm a huge fan of what, what you've accomplished there, so yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm proud of it, and for everyone, anyone listening for the first time, you can always find me on Twitter at Bubbleweet and uh, on flightstightsandmovienights.com. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. I also have a Letterbox D account slash Bubbleweet, where you can find a watch list that still has a lot of great uh, classic and modern classic movies that I've yet to watch that I would be happy. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, if you look at that, see one of your favorite movies that you can't believe that I haven't seen and you'd like to come on the show and talk about it, I'd, I'd love love to have new people. Um, and as always, if you would like to know what we are going to be discussing on the next episode, go ahead and listen through to the end for the mashup trailer. Until next time. People once believed that when someone dies, a crow carries their soul to the land of the dead. But sometimes, something so bad happens that a terrible sadness is carried with it, and the soul can't rest. And sometimes, just sometimes, the crow can bring that soul back to put the wrong things right.